Welcome to a Tuesday night recording, the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. I'm your host, Marshall Pruitt. <sighs> I cover IndyCar. It's kind of my thing. And it's now almost exclusively my thing. So where I once split approximately half of my reporting time between IndyCar and IMSA, I don't know what the exact percentage is going to be, but I can tell you that it is vastly swung in the direction of IndyCar for this year and I would imagine for quite some time. So, and it was honestly that way last year and the year before, but there's an even harder effort for me to focus solely on IndyCar as often as possible. So we get together here on a weekly basis and talk about it all driven by the awesome Q&A that you send in. More specifically, you send the Qs and hopefully I respond with the As. Got to say a big thank you to Jim Kaiser who puts together the Q&A lists for me each week. Genuinely and truly invaluable. Also, I've already mentioned my appreciation for y'all and what you do for making this conversation happen. It's been going on for a while now. Uh, what, four and a half, five years, I think we've been doing this show. I'll try and figure out exactly when it started, but it does feel like, yeah, right around this time in 2017, maybe, maybe even off season of 2016. But nonetheless, here we are rocking with the uh, Weekend Indy Car shows yet again. Don't know if I'm going to have a guest this week usually do the listener Q&A first and then a guest show Wednesday or so. I texted our man Colton Herta. I'm not exactly sure what time zone he's on. Is he still in Sweden? I don't know. should probably check his social medias. But nonetheless, coming off of his race of champions performance with Jimmy Johnson, thought it might be fun to catch up with him. So might do that here if we get a chance. But if we don't, well, we'll just have this episode for the week. I'd say a big thanks as well. To Cooper Tires, find folks who power the road to Indy. Also, the Justice Brothers, amazing automotive chemicals and lubricants I've been using since the 1980s. Genuinely, genuinely. And then finally, motor racing memorabilia found north of the border. Derek Koska, he's our guy. TorontoMotorsports.com. IndyCar stickers, hats, t-shirts, models, Formula One stuff, sports car stuff, show stuff. Right, we can car stuff, we can sports cars, t-shirts, and you name it. TorontoMotorsports.com. Pay them a visit. So we're going to get rolling here with your questions in just a moment. Before I do that, wanted to say one final thank you, and that would be to members of the Prue Day listener group, formed on their own, self-fashioned. I guess is that the way to put it? I don't know. Uh, came together on their own. And they are now exceeding well over 100 members. If you have an interest in joining, there's an email address to use to say, hey, sign me up. They do a lot of fun stuff, bench racing, talking about life, the universe, and everything. Uh, A lot of funny folks there, but just a good group of folks who love racing, kind of come together having listened to the podcast. But they have uh, formed a group in a big, big group of friends of their own. And as they sometimes do, as evidence of their sweet nature, get a little care package that shows up at the door, unannounced, unexpected, you name it, for my wife and I. And so we got one here. 
uh, boy, yet again, the, uh, the, the Sarah Maya couple, that being Jeremiah Morell and Sarah Morell, awesome folks there, uh, just sent a nice little care package that, you know, it's as busy as our lives are with everything, uh, my wife and I are doing on a daily basis, everything she's doing, uh, all the amazing stuff that she's doing. Uh, it's just pretty amazing to come home and find something sitting in front of the door. So thank you to Jeremiah, Sarah, Chris Hoffman, Chris Ward, Carmen Goodrich, Ben Cohen, Jamie Carr. Um, trying to read the writing here. Uh, Christy Pradane, Pradana, I think. I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, Christy. John Wojnar, Brett Ross, Joe Kang, and again, the Morels. So just thank you. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like we deserve y'all because you're so kind and I don't know what the heck we give back other than this silly podcast, but thank you for thinking of us. All right. Uh, we got your questions. We got many of them above the new kind of yellow line. It's kind of the rev limiter line, uh, that Jim has been making and, uh, then we have the all the ones below the red line, the proverbial red line of death. But let's see how many we can get through. Got our cat Rosie meowing in the back. Uh, Rocky is sleeping in the bedroom, so maybe we won't have too many intrusions. But let's get rolling here and see how far we can get uh, with the amount of time that I have tonight, starting your Q&A at 6.41 p.m. California. A uh, couple here to open. A little bit of a deeper dive, as usual. I forgot to say, let's get a little bit of music bed going to kick in our questions. Talking about Hunko's Hollinger Racing, Carlin Racing, and what is going on there. Uh, Hitoroki2, friend from Reddit, says, Marshall, read the story you wrote about Hunko's and Carlin and their alliance, even though it sounds more like Hunko's is buying out Carlin and merging their employees with theirs. Anyways, there also came news that Max Chilton will not drive in any car this coming season, maybe ever again. Uh, Carlin's a name known worldwide for its junior formula teams. Uh, that's why when they stepped in, IndyCar was surprised and excited at the same time. So over time, it was obvious that Carlin wasn't going to match its success in the junior ranks. Um, and after just a couple of years now, they are out of IndyCar. What went wrong? Was it finances? Did Carlin start off on the wrong foot? Never quite found their balance. Did Carlin and the Chilton family underestimate the challenges of IndyCar? Thanks again and blessings. Yeah, I won't pretend to have all the answers on the alliance that um, was described to me. Um, but yes, I would say you will see a lot of the folks that you're accustomed to seeing under the Carlin awning or in the Carlin garage working under the Hunkos Hollinger Racing tent. So... Uh, probably get some more details there that i can share here sometime um would i be surprised if there was a press release or if there was something at some point in time saying this is just straight up every single facet of the assets and the people and the you name it they're all 100 percent hunkos hauling or racing no i would not be surprised if that came out in a press release uh, at some point in time in the future just know that that's not coming out in a press release right now. Um, where did Carlin quote go wrong? 
I don't think they went wrong. What I think is there were a couple of missteps. Know that Trevor mentioned in their debut season, they invested the majority of their R&D money in an aero program, wind tunnel testing and CFD and all kinds of stuff, thinking that mastering aerodynamics was going to be the trick to finding an advantage. Trevor told me at the time that in their junior formula stuff, in particular the spec single-seater type classes, that is indeed where they found sizable gains and that is where they then exploited uh, whatever levels of advantage over their rivals i guess i would say on that theme makes sense for a bigger team like carlin in so many championships with a very stout stout uh, partner and, and backer in graham chilton the ability for, and I'm just randomly picking classes, whether it's a GP2, F3, whatever, the ability for an organization like Carlin to go and spend time in the wind tunnel and really truly map and understand every aspect of the car, or again, big CF computational fluid dynamics program, aero simulation programs, the ability for a junior formula team to do that would really make itself stand out and stand above uh, pretty much all of their rivals or the vast majority of their rivals. Um, Coming into IndyCar in 2018, especially with a brand new aero kit, one that had had a fair amount of, of testing done, a lot of Honda and Chevy testing done with uh, that brand new spec aero kit and that information being passed down to their teams. I'm not saying all of the veteran teams Carlin was joining in 2018 knew everything about the brand new aero kit, but I am saying that it wasn't a giant mystery. And so if we're talking about areas to spend your R&D money and time on, uh, at least as I recall being told, of course, every IndyCar team invested something in that area, but not a crazy amount because they had a heck of a lot of information coming their way from their manufacturers. So they did what they normally do and spend a fortune on suspension developments, damper developments, of course, frictional losses and some other areas where they can find improvements, but really it's the ride and handling quality of the car that they are always trying to find little tiny fractions of speed with. And that's not what Carlin did. They did not have a completely amazing debut season. Uh, Definitely showed some progress. No doubt. No, no doubt. But they started off on on the wrong foot. Therefore... We did have, what, uh, a good fifth place by Charlie Kimball at Toronto. 
But if you look at where Chuck full-time with the team and Max full-time with the team on debut, they finished 17th and 19th in the championship. And again, you could say, hey, brand new team, a lot of things that maybe uh, you can excuse. And I'm sure there are some areas where you go, yeah, come on, can't grade them too hard. But I think there was a feeling that, yeah, had they been able to pick the right place to spend their development money, would have had a, a very different opening to their IndyCar season or IndyCar campaign. And so what happens when we come into 2019? Oh, boy. Well, we got Max. We also have Max, who's decided he no longer wants to do ovals. And so in an instant, we go from, hey, kind of unknowingly goofed up as a rookie operation. You've recognized and are now spending all that money on getting the suspension and handling right for year two. But you're also destabilized a bit with Max deciding to, again, not do... uh, not do the ovals. I think Indy excluded. Uh, but then you have Charlie Kimball, who, while continuing, was on a definite part-time program. You have Pato Award, Sage Karam, uh, R.C. Enerson, I believe, for one race as well, kind of bouncing around in that second car when Chuck wasn't in it. Pato certainly demonstrated some great stuff while there. Not a huge surprise. But I think really this first-year misstep on engineering and the knock-on effects of, hey, wow, uh, Charlie having his forever sponsor, Novo Nordisk, say, yeah, we're actually going to pull back. Um, Was it all because of a not-great 2018? I want to say all, but... That bad result certainly didn't help them decide to spend for a full season. So that opening year followed up with Chuck with half a budget, maybe. Max deciding he wants to radically alter his approach to IndyCar. And then kind of the revolving door of Pato coming in for five, six races, but then Red Bull and F1 maybe and Japanese super formula and F2 and Sage, you come in for a little bit. And then RC, those things are absolute murder on a young team trying to gain traction and develop for the future. These things are lethal from a competitive standpoint. So, You then look on the knock-on effects from there and say, okay, uh, you had about 47 drivers in year two. Uh, What do you do in year three? And, all right, well, we're now down to a single car. And it's max on the road and street courses. Uh, You got Connor doing ovals and such. Um, Not a good time. And then you look to... And what I think the year before Max failed to qualify for the 500 Pato failed to qualify as well. Uh, I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal stuff here. Uh, these are all the things that crush a young team and no matter how much talent they have within the organization, uh, 
or what their history shows in terms of capability. Oh boy, this is some bad stuff. We also have the 2019 assistance with McLaren at the Indy 500, which didn't exactly go well. So brutal. That, that's the best word I can use to describe what Trevor and Stephanie Carlin went through. Uh, I got all the time for them in the world, but yeah, one misstep to the other, all while fighting hard and trying to overcome, and they had some glimpses of, of hope, but never were able to get the right traction to build on things. And uh, yeah, and when you keep having, for the last two years, Max and Connor kind of trading the car on and off. That's yet again something that makes it incredibly hard to build consistency, develop the car in any kind of direction when you've got multiple voices on what to do and how to do it and where and why. Those things all conspire against success. Uh, last thing I'll throw in here, then going to get to the one or two other questions on the subject and then move on. I know that there were serious questions as to whether this was going to continue coming out of the 2020 season. Real questions as to whether they were going to be done. Um, I'm aware that Max Chilton's father basically came out of pocket. Keep in mind, he left as CEO of Gallagher Insurance that sponsorship continued, I think, for a year afterwards, but did not continue in 2021. Um, not even if I'm remembering correctly, if it was there for the full time in 2020. Nonetheless, uh, I do know that Graham Chilton basically bankrolled the 59 Carlin Chevy in 2021, period, all to make sure that the thing did not collapse because with the aforementioned struggles in 18, 19, and then 20 as well, whether it's the failures to qualify, the sponsorship issues, the rotating door of drivers, all those things with Gallagher not continuing to spend really wasn't much in the way of uh, sponsors knocking on their door, wanting to be part of, of the uh, the program in 2021 they did have some not to the tune of the five or six million dollars that you need to field an indy car entry so yeah bit of a cautionary tale for sure and i just hate the fact that we're talking about it involving the carlins uh, daniel summers gill says a hashtag coming from a position of zero knowledge how will the technical alliance between hunkos hauling a racing and carlin work uh, have JHR taken the Carlin staff on their payroll? Does Carlin no longer have a team in any car? They're still part of the Carlin outfit. Uh, won't any data Carlin provides be out of date? Well, if you look at what Carlin did last year, uh, and even the year before, there were certainly some events, Daniel, where they were very good. Uh, ovals, we would say, might have been their strongest suit, but on average, uh, uh, at least across the limited amount of races, that Hunko's Hollinger Racing did, they were shooting in the dark. Really didn't have a quality engineering staff. And what they have here is onboarding uh, 
some of the the finest engineering talent that Carlin has. So I would say that's the number one area of a alliance. Who's paying? Meaning, is Hunko's Hollinger Racing paying Carlin, and Carlin then pays everybody? Is Hunko's Hollinger paying them directly? Again, I don't have that information. Uh, I have an idea, but I can't say for sure. Regardless, um, technical data from last year, I would say, would be a heck of a starting point for Hunko's Hollinger Racing since other than what Portland, Laguna, and Long Beach, they got nothing on the DW12 with the UAK18 bodywork and the arrow kit, the arrow screen bolted onto the front of the car. So while they certainly have some DW12 data, uh, nothing that we would say was really worth keeping or worth building on that they did on their own. So once again, while Carlin did not exactly light the proverbial world on fire last year, I am very comfortable in saying what is coming with uh, the engineers and what is coming in as part of this technical alliance, without a doubt, is better than anything they had uh, or would probably be able to develop on their own. In this, I don't know if it's a short off-season, Daniel, but an off-season where because of the testing rules, yeah, they're not exactly able to go out and pound around and go to all kinds of tracks and develop really good baseline setups at all kinds of places. Uh, And that's pretty much the truth for all teams. But nonetheless, Max was competitive at some places, not saying that his finishing positions at most of the rounds were representative of a super strong car, but right there were certainly some a lot of glimpses in practice sessions and qualifying from time to time. We know that our man Connor Daly, again, was pretty darn strong in the ovals with Carlin. That's the benefit they're getting here. That's where this technical alliance is of significant value. Rules don't allow them to go and do 15 tests uh, and really learn a lot about every track. So this is a great shortcut. Again, I think there's going to be a lot of development on uh, what Carlin came up with. Great thing is they have uh, Yves Touron, who's been a highly skilled race engineer for quite some time. Uh, was sad to see him leave IndyCar. Uh, glad that he's come back. Uh, the kid who's going to be engineering, the race engineer for the car, uh, with Eve as a technical director, the kid is going to be race engineering the car, whose first name is Steve, and I'm forgetting his last. Um, I've only heard very, very positive things about him, and that uh, Callum Eilat, uh really likes him, so it seems like they've got some good chemistry going already. So this is the value and benefit. They, While I don't expect them to be, you know, front runners by any means in this debut full season effort of theirs. This has given them a head start that otherwise, if it was just them having to come up with it on their own, oh, this would not be pretty. So that's that. Uh, last item, Mitsuki Matsur. How you doing, Mitsuki? Says, Marshall, sad to see Max Choten leave IndyCar. 
to you, you say his best race would be the 2017 8500. What is the thing you're most impressed about him in his IndyCar and Indy Lights career? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, Mitsuki, I don't know. I, like you, would have to point to that really strong run to fourth place with Ganassi um, in 2017. There were certainly some races where he drove like mad to get a very decent result out of a car that on the day might have been three, four, five spots worse than what he was able to do with it. The thing I'll be honest about, he impressed me when he was at Ganassi in his, what, sophomore season, second year, right? He had, I think, like six, five, six top tens. And I'm not talking like tenths. I mean, you know, I just seem to recall him having a bunch of sevenths, eighth maybe, and a ninth, something like that. I know, again, that fourth at Indy was pretty big, but those are decent finishes, right? And 2017 was by no means easy, an easy season. So I thought there was something relatively impressive there. He finished, I think, 12th, 11th or 12th in 2017. So the full body of work told me that, hey, if this guy can stay, if this guy can keep developing in a, in a top team, boy, uh, he might be a, a pretty darn good and consistent challenger where things surprised me a bit. And so this is not giving you the thing that I thought the most about Max. The part that surprised me a bit, knowing that he was coming to IndyCar, that came to Indy Lights, obviously, with Formula One experience, uh, sports car experience, uh, really, you know, significant amount of junior open wheel experience. I thought all of that would have translated into a stronger team leader-ish type role at Carlin. I would have expected a bigger influence in the team's upliftment and directions being taken and so on. I'm not saying he didn't in any way. I'm just saying I expected to see a greater influence there. And I don't know if I fully saw that. There were times where it looked and felt like he was the driver. This being the family team. Again, his father, you know, fully bedrock there. Um, Financially, spiritually, all kinds of things. I know he got married young, you know, wife and family and other things to focus on in his world. But beyond just moving from Ganassi to the family team at Carlin, I don't know. Um, There was a part of me that thought, was there more time to invest? Was there more effort to place to steer the team to stronger and better places? Again, there were some good finishes in there. I think what, 2019, uh, like an 11th at Portland and something similar at Laguna, right? Those are little victories for the team. 
they had a lot of those little victories here and there and, and everywhere. But yeah, that's the thing that I'm going to remember. What if it's more of a, what if, and what could have been than anything else? Uh, we're going to go to drag racing through life from Twitter. Uh, Hey MP year long listener. First time having the guts to ask a question. Oh, come on. They're guts. Just send them in. We don't get to all of them every week. Sometimes it takes multiple attempts and multiple questions, but we'll get you. We'll get you taken care of. Um, it says, thought you said, uh, Tony Kanon renewed his contract with Chip Ganassi racing. Is that an indie only deal or does it extend to testing? He did have a two year deal. 2021, 2022 was meant to do all the ovals in the number 48 Honda with Jimmy Johnson focusing on the road and street courses. Jimmy Dunn changed his mind during the off season said, Hey, you know what? Uh, I actually want to do, uh, the ovals too. And so from what I understand, the Ganassi team reconfigured that contract. So the only race he has going that I know of is the Indy 500. So a one-off, if you want to put it that way, or I want to put it that way, I guess. Would expect him to be there for the Indy Open Test uh, leading into the Indy 500, but I do not expect Tony to be doing anything else from a testing standpoint. So that's kind of sort of what I know. Uh, Again... Does Tony want to stop? No. Is Tony going to probably keep looking for something? I would say so. Outside of the ovals, uh, more ovals for someone else. Who knows? Like, how's this? Had Carlin continued this year with Connor Daly committed full season to Ed Carpenter Racing. I know it's a bit of a Honda-Chevy conflict going back and forth, but... Could I see Tony filling in on the ovals for Max? If Carlin was still here, yes. What I do have to question is how many seats are going to be open next year where folks will be looking to put Tony in their car. I don't know. I really don't. What I would say here to close drag racing through life from the good old Twitter boy talk about this coming Indy 500 being an important one for young Antoine Canon. If he is able to rock like usual and do some big and impressive things, he doesn't have to win. I don't, you know, I don't think he has to do anything more than maybe finish in the top five, but if he can have a strong race and demonstrate to everybody, forget, my age forget everything else i not only still have it we're not questioning that it's the and i just demonstrated it to you with a finish that without question tells you i still got it right uh i've showed you that when you come back to indy next year you need to consider putting me in your car because i'm going to do big things for you uh whether that's ganassi in 2023 or someone else would say this month of may is going to be an important one for tony in terms of either keeping teams interested or reminding those who might not have been paying attention over the last year or two in his last lap and last last lap tours 
uh, that, you know what? Don't sleep on our man, Kanon, your 2013 Indy 500 winner. Thanks again for sending this in for the first time. And for those of you who are, are I don't know, don't want to or nervous or what, just send it in for real. I'm the son of a mechanic, y'all. Like, I record this in our spare bedroom. That's my office, okay? Like, this is about as blue-collar as it gets. So it's just us, racing fans, talking about IndyCar. Seriously, send more stuff in, please. Uh, Jameen Tuttle. How you doing, Jameen? I'm going to do what I shouldn't do and take a sip of coffee here. Love what NASCAR did over the weekend. The LA Coliseum. Not necessarily the race on TV, but having been to a number of really short tracks in person, it was exciting. It's an idea for IndyCar. What about a street race in a major city, but instead of weaving in and out over a two-mile stretch, race around the block. A paperclip-shaped course, one block by three blocks. Short course in a compact area with money on the line. Maybe it's crazy. But it might draw some eyes. I love the idea, Jameen, and I was thinking something similar for IndyCar watching uh, the 27-hour broadcast on Sunday or whatever it was. Um, doing a short oval like that wouldn't work for IndyCar for, I would say, obvious reasons. And for those who don't know, uh, exposed wheels, contact, cars being flipped like paint pancakes sorry my body just rejected the idea uh cars being flipped by, like pancakes uh from all the contact uh with the constant turning and cornering and shoving and lack of width of the track so yeah uh love the idea of them going to the coliseum would never work um but your idea of street race take it to the people but don't necessarily string the thing out all over the place keep it kind of local so who knows maybe actually the, the layout is one where the fans are all on the inside. Uh, you know, kind of hopefully not turning around and around and around for hours till they fall over. But I love this idea. And the big thing that came to mind watching NASCAR at the LA Coliseum was, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, had similar thoughts who might have caught it. Hey, whether this is a great race or not, you know, this this is pretty darn cool. Totally out of left field, going to a non-traditional market to open the season, right? So not Daytona, but hey, your first NASCAR racing and competition, first televised thing, all the way on the other side of the coast, iconic venue, a place that, you know, if you looked at most of the fans, a lot of them look younger, like, hey, I don't know exactly what this is, but this is cool. I'm here. That's everything IndyCar needs. Uh, younger blood, fresher blood, uh, something intriguing that that's very different. I yet again mourned IndyCar's lack of creativity because NASCAR got them. <laughs> Boy, great idea. And then I probably, like most of you, was thinking, well, what could IndyCar do that would be similar? I don't know. Again, we, we probably, whether it's Jameen's idea of a oval-ish street race that's not too long uh you know it's not too big i should say of a track uh, the idea i think there's one solid idea and formula e even though it's not a commercial success in terms of fans and tickets being bought and all that they bring their product to the people they make it impossible for the people <laughs> to not see it and be there and be part of it 
it's not something where if you aren't a racing fan, you're not going to go right. This isn't the, Oh, you got to drive. I mean, look, it's my home track Laguna Seca for me. It's an hour 40 ish hour, 45 minute drive South middle of nowhere. Love it again, beautiful and all those things. But if you aren't a racing fan, you would never go to a motor race or even contemplate driving a long distance to go to Laguna Seca up in the mountains and whatever and camping grounds. What, what's going on? Like it's just a little weird and the average person wouldn't consider it. Drop that thing right in their lap downtown Metro area. Hey, Seattle likes for real, a Seattle street race. Let's give it a try. Uh, I mean, we've been to Las Vegas a couple times, but let's think of something. Let's think of some locations where there are a lot of people and sports, major sports is part of the culture. And let's try Jameen's idea or something similar. But I know not everybody loves street racing. I do. But that idea, it's never a losing idea. You might not have a street race that survives three, five, ten years, but at least in terms of going to the people, introducing your product to them, whether that specific race survives or not, you're at least putting yourself in front of a lot of folks who otherwise don't know you, wouldn't know you, wouldn't care. So love the idea, Jameen. Uh, Mato Corey says, hello, MP, been a while since I wrote in, but for this round, do you know of any uh, active initiatives IndyCar has in place? to try and keep growing the fan base. I mean, we all want more and more tracks. Cough, cough, redundant ovals comment here. Um, But those don't come without fans. Additionally, what are your thoughts and ideas on this? Oh, boy. Yeah, so I want to finish this episode in a timely manner. So I'm not going to go... We're going to keep a short leash in this one. Uh, Yes, IndyCar is doing things every single day to try and attract new fans. I think the vast majority of it is being done through social media. I think that's the same thing that every other racing series and sport and business and form of entertainment and everything uh, does as well. But yeah, uh, I read some interesting stats today, for example, uh, in an article or a column, an opinion piece written by my man, Paul Fanner, founder and owner of Racer Magazine, where 99% of my work is read by y'all. Um, looking at the metrics, the demographics of what racer.com is seeing and like truly the, the reach of racer.com and the amount of people who are coming here are it's really significant right so it's not just a little tiny slice giving some sort of weird aberration of numbers i just pulled this up here um paul wrote and i see these metrics by the way uh, like the real true verified metrics behind the scenes so just sharing with you that these numbers aren't kind of made up they're actual real uh he says it is important to mention the fastest growing age segment on racer.com are all under the age of 44 with the 18 to 24 age group leading the way in growth percentage. Um, 
that's a really important thing to know. And where that's important to know, circling back to the what is IndyCar doing, for example, to grow its fan base and keep growing the fan base and connect with folks. Known for a long time, I've cited it ad nauseum for a decade plus that IndyCar's primary demo, older white male. Um, it, that number may have come down a little bit, but it used to be 50-ish, 55 years and older, right? So basically everybody's grandpa is IndyCar's number one potential fan. What's important here uh, from what Paul wrote in his column talking about the NASCAR LA Coliseum event and the under 44 crowd and specifically the 18 to 24 being the biggest growth area for us. And this has been happening for the last couple of years. IndyCar is the number one product on our site. Period. End of statement. <laughs> There's nothing else that is remotely close to being more popular than IndyCar on racer.com. We cover Formula One, we cover NASCAR, we cover IMSA, we cover Road to Indy, this or that, W Series, Formula E. Nothing comes close to IndyCar, nor has it pretty much since Robin and I joined in 2013. So there's some pretty important linkage and correlation here. Biggest area of growth for IndyCar, younger. Biggest product that we are offering and that's being consumed on a daily basis, and this has been the way for a while, but it's IndyCar, period. And so that's the thing when I see these metrics behind the scenes, and there's a lot more, like I do little happy dances because I know that when we're talking about who's coming to the site, who's reading what, um, it's not all the the typical um, kind of grandfatherly age uh, fan. It's actually getting younger. And so to close on this, Mato Corey, I'm not saying IndyCar is responsible for that. I need to give Racer credit here too. And Robin Miller and the editors and decision makers, Lawrence Foster, Mark Lendenning, you name it, that are and have been all in on IndyCar. Keep going, keep pushing, right? There's there's no such thing as too much IndyCar content. Uh, so a lot of folks, and there are other outlets as well, media outlets, that do an excellent job on covering IndyCar. So it's not just Racer, but it's also sure as heck not just IndyCar. So it's a decent number uh, of entities trying to make IndyCar more popular. NBC's one of them as well. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see that at a place where I think more than any other online destination, IndyCar fans go to, uh, the age demo is growing in the youth. And that makes me super happy. Uh, let's go to Andrew Miller. Says, what's your pick for the Indy 500 halftime entertainer? Because apparently that's a thing now. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I don't know if they're going to stop at the 250-mile mark and have someone do some songs like they did last weekend in L.A. Uh, 
man, the ice cube thing was kind of disappointing. Um, Mastodon. I've, I've just, I have, man, I've loved Mastodon for a good long while now. That's not new. Uh, what is new is how much I've been listening to their new album, which came out, what, end of October? Um, let's see. Which song on their new album, Hushed and Grim, uh, have I listened to the most? Uh, track 12 of 15, Savage Lands. I've listened to that 39 times since basically the beginning of November. Um and which track have I listened to the least? Uh, 25 times. So again, I would say at minimum, I've listened to the whole album 25 times since the beginning of November. Uh, and those songs that I really like, I have gone and played individually 30 or more times. So I'm going to go with Mastodon. This new album is brilliant. I th- it's the best. Like, Crack the Sky. Uh, I think was universally regarded as their best and many of their hard, hardest core since day one fans uh, say not only that, but also that uh, this new album is not exactly what they were hoping for. I don't know what you're talking about. This thing's amazing. So there you go. And for those of you who don't know who Mastodon happens to be and don't care, ah, it's a minute of your life. You're never going to get back, suckers. <laughs> uh, all right, let's see. Uh, Don Davis says you're heading to St. Pete for the first time. Is there a local specialty food item or restaurant that you can recommend? And do you have a secret spot around the track? It's good for taking photos. Well, there is quite a bevy of amazing South American restaurant type food joints in and around the area. Uh, None are coming to mind right now, Don. I also don't know if that's your thing. But I would say if you like South American food, and again, I'm not just referring to the generic term of Mexican food, but whether it is Cuban, whether it's Guatemalan, whether it's Venezuelan, like there's a lot of rich and awesome amazingness uh, to be found there and here in the Bay Area where uh, I'm from. But that's probably the thing that I enjoy because... There are specific regions in the country where you can find great South American food. And so, yeah, uh, this is one of them. Uh, I do know that I spoke, I spent, I think my phone told me 42 minutes on the phone today with our boy French fry, Mr. Bourdais. And uh, while he won't be competing uh, at the Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, uh, I do believe he and I are going to be having dinner at least a couple times. So um, let me see if he has any local places that he loves since he and uh, his wife and kids, they live in Tampa, uh, right nearby. So, yeah, kind of coming from out of town. I'm just looking for uh, some cool variations on stuff that I like, and I often find that. But uh, Bourdais are really good at picking restaurants, so let me see what uh, we can find out here. As for secret spot for taking photos, <sighs> elevation is the one thing that really helps when you are trying to take photographs of cars in action on a street course dawn as a fan. Um, why I mention this because as a professional photographer, I get the access to go on the other side of the fences. 
and get up really close to the barriers so I can shoot over the barriers. As fans, that's not often the case. So you are sometimes standing in a area where even if there's not a lot of obstruction between you and the cars, you still might not be able to see a lot more than, you know, the top half of the arrow screen and a little bit of other stuff there too. What I would recommend is this, two things, and it's almost a universal recommendation that extends beyond just street courses, but, you know, I would say really does apply to almost every track you'd go to. Uh, bring a collapsible little stepladder type thing. They usually won't let you carry in like a big old one. Uh, I mean, you could try, but something that you can easily uh, assemble or make use of that's going to get you an extra foot or two of height, that's always going to be a big thing. Uh, if you don't have one, granted, I don't know, everyone has different equipment, but if you have a DSLR, like a pro-ish type camera and a longer lens, uh, make sure you have a monopod to help stabilize things, especially if you're standing up on a uh, stool uh, of some sort place where i would say you are going to have the best opportunities to get some unique stuff is farthest point from start finish that being the little kind of turn five six seven eight nine complex that then feeds on to um bayshore drive down the back straight and whatnot so that's where i would concentrate because unless they're changing something, they don't put up much inside that little park-ish type area uh, to block your view from the inside. So I'd say that might be your best opportunity because getting really great access to the cars from a photography standpoint, other than down by the Mahaffey Theater by turn 10, um, I, I think you're going to be a little bit disappointed only other place where I've seen some nice fan shots and it does involve elevation uh, is driver's right. Uh, on the exit of turn 10, there's some grandstands. Uh, if you can get up high there, you can shoot down and over uh, most everything, most of the fencing and, and whatnot and get the cars coming into turn 10 at a high rate of speed and navigating through there. So that would be my suggestion, Dawn. Uh, Jason Hatfield, how you doing, Jason? Uh, says, if you had to put all your chips on one new winner this year, who would you bet on? Says, I'm taking Jack Harvey. Best to you and Chabrell. Uh, I'll say uh, Romaine Gross Gene, for sure. Or, as properly pronounced, uh, yeah, if that guy doesn't win, I don't know, this is going to be one of those loaded, possibly dickish uh, answers here, but... Knowing everything that took place for Romain Groschamp to join Andretti Autosport, take over the number 28 Honda, continue the relationship with DHL, one that essentially brought an end to Ryan Hunter Ray's full-time IndyCar career, uh, the kind of gutting of Dale Coyne racing with his departure, uh, taking the clear biggest engineering brain in Olivier Boisson realize that Olivier is a man with free will and he chose to do it. But just saying, you know, you look at all that transpired here, 
Big vacuum created a coin. Uh, went from being podium chasers, pole possible wins coming a little bit close once or twice last year, Jason, to I don't think they're going to have anything like that going on this season. To then the big career transition taking place for Ryan Hunter Ray, Groschamp coming in, uh, the blood vendetta he and I have against one another um over the reporting of such things before he wanted them reported okay the last part has no bearing on anything i just figured i'd say it for fun um you figure all those things in factor all those things in jason if that guy doesn't win at least one race for michael andretti oh man that is going to be a story not a good story who knows maybe it's a all team-based. Again, who knows the reason? I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think he's going to fail to win a race. I think he's actually going to be the biggest uh, penetrator. Uh, oh, man, we're, 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 we're falling off the rails already. Biggest emerger, as I use words that don't exist, into the top 10 this season. How could he not be, based on what he did last year, with $2 and a donut for a budget uh, with a small team. So, yeah, Groschamp, period, end of statement. Um, you mentioned Harvey. Funny. Uh, I do think Jack's going to win a race this year. In my mind, I don't know if I have him being the first Ray Hall driver to win. Uh, I would say Graham. I'd also maybe say Lingard. That's maybe another question. Like, do I think all three RLL drivers are going to win can win yes do i put jack p1 on that list not necessarily uh so another thing for me at least that's a wee bit fascinating maybe it is for y'all maybe it isn't uh where do we go uh helenio depre depre i apologize i'm sure i murdered that helenio uh, marshall do you think uh this year chevy will be better or will honda still have some advantages I yes <laughs> don't know how to answer that uh, we haven't really had a large group test we're going to next week at Sebring um, this is going to be one of those things we just need to see a street race a uh, natural terrain road course and some oval stuff going on before we have a picture as to who's got what there's some traditional things that you know, Honda bottom end, mid range is fierce. Chevy top end, fierce. What is Chevy going to be working on, of course, to try and fill in the areas where Honda's been exceptional? Honda, of course, is going to try and fill in the areas where Chevy's been exceptional. I'll, I'll, I'll say this it's the last year of this engine formula. Of course, both brands want to win the championship, win the Indy 500, all those things. If either one of them went buck nutty with their budget in R&D efforts to try and unearth some sort of massive advantage that they hadn't previously held over the last 10 years of using this motor, 10, 11 years, whatever it is, they'd be insane. They'd probably be fired too, knowing that they're putting a lot of money into the brand new formula coming next year. So I can't answer your question because I need data. 
and we don't have enough data. We barely have any data. So, yeah, uh, I can tell you this. If we're just looking at trends, if we're looking at how the 2021 season ended, I mean, you got to feel pretty good for Honda, uh, knowing that they won how many races? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of the 17. You know, that, that's not a crazy advantage, but it's definitely more than Chevy. Um, greatest thing to look for here is who did what in the offseason with entries. And are there more Chevy entries capable of doing big things this year than there were last year or less? Same with Honda. Um, I don't really see any giant shifts in either direction to have me go, oh, yeah, there's a couple of extra Chevys, for example, that are going to be amazing front-running race winners uh, or taking huge step backs. I don't see that either, nor do I see Honda with any new, like, oh, my gosh, um, who'd you, where'd that rock star come from that you didn't have before? Um, or, and also don't see them losing any significant talent. I mean, really, if we're just talking credentials, Pagano coming over from Chevy is going to be, you know, the the biggest addition to the Honda camp. So that, of course, being Penske reducing from four cars to three, that's probably the only major one that jumps out in terms of, yeah, that, that might put another stronger race-winning potential-type bullet in Honda's camp that they didn't have before. We'll have to see, though. Uh, don't sleep on Chevy. They are so aggressive and so good that, uh, yeah, they just do not deal with not winning championships in a positive way at all. So uh, let's see. Where do we go here? Vassar Sullivan is coming in from our pal Jürgen Binnemans. Says, hello from Belgium. Hello, Jürgen. I've been to your fine country once. And only for about five or six hours for a sh super short track race. Uh, and I mightily enjoyed it. Uh, he says, now the KV Racing and Dale Coin have gone their separate ways. Is KV going to hook up with another team or is it IMSA only this year? I think we're talking about uh, VS instead of KV, that being Vassar Sullivan. Uh, the uh, Cal Coven and Vassar arrangement hasn't been around for a little while but yeah uh vassar sullivan as i understand is not intending to do anything in indycar at the moment could they line up with a team for the indy 500 and that's bringing sponsors and their name as part of a co-entry not actually running a car fielding a car entering a car but just again a co-entry attaching to an existing one Jurgen, I think we might be 50-50 there in terms of odds. Um, but I don't know if I would put the odds beyond that. So I do think it's going to be 90, whatever, high 90 percentage focus on IMSA. Uh, Andrew Howard, why do teams occasionally choose scuff tires versus sticker tires? What benefit comes from them? 
Well, it's basically a heat cycling process. Uh, if you are going super hard on brand new sticker tires and there's any question, and I realize we're talking about any and all forms of, of IndyCar racing here, not any one specific type of track, but if you are having to have the longest duration of quality from a set of tires, more often than not, the preference is to go with a, quote, scuffed set, one where they've been used for a very limited number of laps, one to two, maybe three at most. And that's just to put them through a heat cycle, basically a curing process. And by going through that intentional and kind of managed one, two-ish lap outing process, Andrew, uh, you bring the tires up to temperature. You're not attacking on them. You're not late braking. You're really, there's a formula to this. And I don't mean like there's an actual written formula, but there's just a kind of a formula process that gets followed where the tires are brought up to temperature, not super crazy extreme temperatures. Like I said, no sliding around and burnt, you know, crazy wheel spin coming off the corners. All you're trying to do is keep the most amount of rubber on the tire, bring it up to operating temperature, and then bring it back down and pit and take them off. So the benefit here is curing, a curing of the rubber. And so that having gone through that process by air quote scuffing them, uh, they are indeed ready to go and ready to be hammered right away. You do that because, and especially if you're looking at high ambient temperatures in the race, something where blisters could be a possibility and such, if you're having to go right out on a set of sticker tires, especially in high, high heat, uh, there are some potential risks of getting shorter lifespan from the tires and maybe having some blistering or some adverse effects with the tires this really is just curing them so that they are then able to withstand uh, not only punishment, but tend to last a longer period of time uh, because they're not going through that dynamic heat cycle of coming up and maybe being too hot and having to keep going for the rest of a long stint. So, yeah, uh, it's curing, my friend, to get the uh, best and longest life out of them. Uh, our pal Tim Falkowitz the person who not only originally put together the questions for me, but kindly subs in um, whenever necessary. It says, on speedways like Texas and Indy, how much do teams play with camber to reduce the tire contact patch uh, with the track and minimize rolling resistance? Um, decent amount, Tim. That is one area where, for sure, at some of the ovals where you... Okay. IndyCar often adjusts its aero configuration for the ovals. Sometimes every year, sometimes not, but it's not uncommon for there to be differing, changing, evolving aero configurations for the cars. Downforce amounts. Again, could be up, could be down, whatever. If we're talking about an oval where 
There's ample downforce to be used in the corners to make speed. You will then often see teams doing all they can to take contact patch away from the track by tilting the tires inwards at the top. And so while cornering, you will then have the tires, you'll have the suspension move, those pivot points move, and the tire lay down and put the majority of its contact patch on the road. Don't necessarily need all of it in some aero specifications or some tracks that have a lot of banking where and gravity and the banking itself handles uh, a lot of the cornering. So that's why folks say, hey, you know what? We're going as fast as we can. Why don't we see if we can actually take a little bit of grip away from whether it's all tires, one tire, again, all depends. A lot of variables here to consider based on the year and aero spec, blah, blah, blah. But yes, this is an area for sure. And I wouldn't say it's only limited to IndyCar on ovals. So yeah, this is an important one, man. It really is because if you can reduce friction, uh, that's not needed running in the straight line between corners, but also if you can get through the corners, without needing that last little bit of the tire rolling over and making contact, less friction, more speed. I'm going to take another sip here, and that's just to uh, wet my throat. Frederick Wakeman, how are you? Frederick, thanks for sending me that note about attending the uh, Race of Champions, by the way. So there are a few testing opportunities this year. You say, which five drivers will be least affected by this? I love random numbers. Um, which five will be most affected? Question two, you want a third question? Come on, man. Any technical changes that will affect the car's performance and drivability this year? Uh, other than what I wrote about in terms of some higher downforce options being made available, um, and if you haven't read those, pay a visit to racer.com. Uh, other than those, I'm not aware of anything uh, that is going to change from a technical standpoint uh, to affect performance or drivability. Uh, the five who will be least affected by the highly restrictive um, amount of test days allowed. Uh, let me pull up a little bit of entry list here and answer. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to limit it to five. I'm just going to mention all those who fall into a category of least affected. Uh, Colton Herta. Pato Ward, Scott Dixon. Uh, not sure if I want to put Alex Pillow in there. Still feel like Alex needs a little bit more rhythm. Right? Like after one more year, I, I don't think he'd be affected by it. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to put Alex in there. Joseph Newgarden. Yeah, so is that five? Did I just by chance hit your number? Colton Herta, Pato Ward, Scott Dixon. No, that's only four, I think. Um, yeah, and Newgarden. Of course, they're all going to say that they want more. T every single driver at St. Pete is going to say, man, I really need more time, want more time, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, uh, they're all dealing with this equally. Uh, which ones are going to be affected most by 
lack of testing, I'd say you pretty much rack up all the rookies. Uh, that's going to be the easiest place to start. Uh, Tatiana Calderon is going to be starting her IndyCar career with three total tests, one of them being done six months ago, if not longer. Uh, so she's going to have basically, I'll just call what she's doing with Foyt now, two tests, and then, hey, become an IndyCar driver. Uh, yeah. Uh, Kirkwood's been to all the tracks, basically. Plus, he's phenomenally good. Uh, so I, he's certainly is going to need more time, but I don't think it's going to be as detrimental for him as the other rookies. Devlin Francesco definitely needs more laps. David Malukas definitely needs more laps. Callum Eilat's got ridiculous talent, but he's going to almost every track for the first time, so he certainly needs more laps. Lungard, I think, yeah, he falls in that category, too, of needing more. Everything has barely been anywhere, but... I think he's going to stand out a bit and not be too super weighed down. Um, whatever the number is, whether it's five or not, let me throw in a couple that I think we're going to see. Yeah, keep an eye out on whether this has negative effects on them. One of them is Will Power, right? Will is very much a rhythm guy. And take him out of rhythm and being studied and warmed up and... That has at times been uh, an issue for Will, having a bit of a slow start. I say that. Of course, he's going to be on pole and win St. Petersburg. Hopefully, all of you laugh at me and remind me of that. But um, whatever I say, whatever I suggest is going to happen from that standpoint, always the opposite takes place. But nonetheless, Power has definitely been a guy who needs to get into the groove before he can perform. be interesting to see how Graham Rahal uh, deals in that capacity. He is just about the best race day performer in IndyCar. The thing we know and have known for a while, he admits freely, needs to improve his qualifying performances. How does limited preseason activity affect him? Uh, Simon Pagano is going to have all of two tests with his new team and new engineer before St. Pete. Simon, like Will, very much of a mental warmth and comfort and groove type guy. Uh, so Power and Pagano definitely stand out more than Graham, but uh, I'll put Graham in there too. Just looking elsewhere here. Yeah. I don't know if any others really stand out. So hopefully I got all your questions there uh, handled, Frederick. Uh, Maddie McDonald. How you doing, Maddie? Says, so we're always talking about the teams, engineers working real hard in the off season to make strides and speed, but what kind of things are they doing specifically? Is it shaker rig simulator time with the driver, something else? And if they're using the shaker rig or driver in the loop sim and trying a bunch of things, what kind of things are they trying? How do they know when they're on to something? Uh, looking for technical details of the process. Please go full nerd in response. I'll ask for example graphs, or I'd ask for example graphs if it wasn't a podcast and says nice things uh, about my wife and the cats. So thanks, Maddie. Appreciate you. Uh, boy, again, this is a could fill hours talking about this stuff. So I don't want to do that too heavily here, Maddie. Combinations, right? That's pretty much race engineering. <laughs> distilled into one word combinations 
more or less gone are the days of, Hey, we found the magical innovation and it makes the car a second faster. Um, it's combinations of things. It's so we have tried this suspension geometry. We've tried this ride height. We've tried this damper package. We have tried this gap on the third spring. We have, we have, we have, we have, we have. It's this differential setting. It's this gear ratio package. It is this, it is that. It is this arrow configuration. It is moving center of pressure this far forward, this far back. Uh, it is roll control and how much anti you want in that. Uh, it is a lot of these things where if you're looking for kernels of improvements after having had the same car and kind of the same engine for a decade now, I don't know how much there is. Damper development is, is truly an ongoing, never-ending thing. There are only so many holes you can plug your suspension into. So from a geometry standpoint, you've got a fixed number of options there. Ride height is going to kind of sort of be a thing that dictate it's, dictates itself, right? You're not going to see folks going insanely low like no one else has or insanely high. Of course, you can look at all the uh, the suspension angle bits, camber, toe. Uh, you can look at your caster and such. There's, It's the combinations of these things that you have teams constantly assessing and evaluating. And whether it is a new damper configuration that's been built and running through various spring packages, ride heights with that, to see what stands out as better than maybe you had before or not. Uh, it's a lot of these things. I wish I could say that the teams could come up with a million different new ideas in terms of parts and pieces to put on the car and try, but that's not really a thing, nor has it been that kind of thing for a long time. One other overarching item here, and it's the driver. And so this is where the driver in the loop simulation is crazy important. And I think we got a question towards the bottom, maybe below the, uh, what is it? Is it the, yes, it's below the red line of death from our pal Clint Lawnen. Uh, when drivers get simulator time, do they take their crew chief or strategist with them to simulate races? Are they just learning and practicing um, at a specific track? Uh, yes to all the above if need be um, usually you will have the race engineer with them and we're talking real driver in the loop stuff not just i'm going to it well granted driver in the loop is still just a, a simulator just a multi-axis hydraulic ram or electric ram actuated thing but in some cases it is just hey go and learn the track so you can be effective from the outset um, but the other part that takes place just as much, if not also, during those sessions is, hey, we're going to try a, whether a setup change, we're going to try a different this, a different that. Realize this is all virtual, but boy, these things are pretty darn accurate. Um, you get to a place, Maddie, where you might have a bunch of great ideas, and 
computer simulation might tell you that this idea that you have is going to find two-tenths of a second, which would be insane. A massive gain. Doesn't matter. Unless the driver can drive the vehicle with that setting, that idea, that component change. Uh, Since the cars don't drive themselves, this is where the driver in the loop, the DIL simulators, are so important. So what they would learn, say, on the shaker rig of running the car, bouncing it up and down with the rams and running it through laps and laps of whichever tracks they're, uh, they have plugged in that the, uh, the shaker rig is perfectly simulating uh, or replicating, I should say. And the data that comes off with, again, the, whether it's geometry changes, damper, all the things, um, they'll come across some items that they go, Hey, that looks promising. I like that. Now we need to try that in the DIL. Because a good old driver X says, hey, I'm glad it looks like perfection. But me having to use it, not so much the case. Uh, That's where you have to find out if it's going to jive with that driver's style. Um, Really key and important. You almost can't get around that. So um, I think I've hit a lot of the basic or a lot of the stuff here, Uh, Maddie. And if there are more specifics you want, maybe we can do some of those in bite-sized answers in future episodes. Uh, Caleb Whistler says, as a consumer of sports media, I've noticed growing anger from the TV networks towards Nielsen, the Nielsen rating folks. Um, The most recent being undercounting out-of-home audiences for several months. NBC is reported to be using an alternative service to track viewership of the Olympics and Super Bowl. So I know TV ratings and viewership effects ad buys and possible value for sponsors earned by its logo showing up on cars. Has there been any concern or worry from IndyCar itself or the teams about Nielsen and its issues? Great question. I have no idea. Um, I'm going to highlight your question in yellow, Caleb, and try and remember to ask uh, someone from IndyCar uh, next opportunity I get. We'll say, though, still the standard it's still the standard that uh is being looked at to measure value um how long will that be don't know uh <laughs> person calling themselves rowan richardson or noah richardson or richardson richard noah uh says will the energy recovery system work like the current push to pass system with an allotted amount of time Or will it be a use what you got kind of deal? Great question, Noah. Or Roa, I should say. Big difference here is what's coming with the ERS, the exclusively broken and detailed and documented by yours truly after, no joke, two years of trying to find out the details and being stonewalled by IndyCar. Uh super capacitor based system uh big difference here and for those who know telling you things you know for those who don't ah, a little bit of knowledge will be passed down here so with what we have had with push to pass for so many years is a over provisioning of turbo boost 
So there is a capped amount of turbo boost the engines can use. With the push-to-pass system, one that will be used yet again this year, there is a, hey, we're going to bypass that limit and give you an extra amount of boost, which translates to about 40-ish, maybe up to 50 horsepower, who knows, for a maximum amount of time per race. And so this is an elective thing using a resource that cannot be exhausted. Might have been a bad pun since turbos are spun up by exhaust. Anyways, uh, using push-to-pass with turbocharged engines, again, there's no resource that is being consumed and drawn down. So that's why they use time for it. We could let you have it all raise long. Granted, it wouldn't be a push to pass. It'd just be extra power, but you can use it all day. Uh, not going to take life away from the engine in any meaningful capacity or whatever else. So they say, hey, 100 seconds of push to pass. Use it as you see fit. Big change here, obviously, is this is a massively consumable item that being energy in a battery. And so, yes, indeed. Uh, or I should say supercapacitor. I apologize. Um, this is absolutely a consumable commodity. This is something that for sure uh, is going to be something that is used until you got no more to use. So that is why time will be going away from the ERS push-to-pass starting in 2023, unless they come up with some cockamamie reason to keep it that I can't figure out. But bottom line here is it's there to be used and deployed as desired as long as you have it. Will they come up with criteria where it can't be engaged? Possibly, right? Again, I don't know. Um, isn't available below X miles per hour or again, how you, who knows if they will come up with any restrictions like that. But since this isn't just kind of elective thing to let people have more of, like a uh, turbo boost, uh, time will be gone in terms of a restriction at NOAA, and it will indeed be use what you got uh, when you got it, and then recharge and use what you got again. Um, that's what I understand about the system, about their plans. Like so many things, I look forward to learning more as soon as I can. Uh, let's see. Windy car. Hi, MP. Maybe a stupid question, but it seems like folks are always testing a Sebring. Uh, Indy cars there. Road to Indy. Almost all the teams. Says uh, Kevin Lee did a trackside episode from there. Is it impossible to actually race at, uh, Sebring with Indy cars? Uh, if yes, why? Uh, well, okay. So where the Indy cars test at Sebring is kind of the outer portion of the circuit and is just generally referred to as a Sebring short course. That short course bypasses the nastiest, roughiest, disgustingiest portions of the track in terms of potholes and bumps. In the most basic of, of uh, terms, it bypasses the airport portion of the course, the 
Sebring International Raceway is uh, based around a former military uh, air base, and that those runways and things closer to that runways, those are all the areas where, man, again, the place is just bombed out. And so that's why sports cars with high ride heights uh, that can tolerate it, they race at the track. Uh, we see some small junior open wheel cars race there, but with very high ride heights. Something like an Indy car with a very low ride height, and that low ride height is what is needed for the car to perform. It's not designed to ride hiked way up off the ground. Um, you'd snap the cars in half. <laughs> it just, yeah, you'd destroy every single chassis. So that's why Sebring is not used. Then come to the short course. Uh, pretty good grip there, right? The weather in general is very favorable. And it's just something that, your next question, what makes it so great for testing? Uh, it's something that emerged decades ago as a, well, it's a good alternative. We know that we can test there, all, what, every month of the year? Like, I'm sure, that, you know, there are a couple of cold months, but for the most part, you can almost always go there. It's not exactly super close to anything, but they're pretty friendly at welcoming testing and making themselves available. They're not overrun with other events, right? It's not like some racetracks where they've got an event every weekend. Um, so a lot of availability, favorable weather. Um, and also, since it started becoming popular, it started becoming a place where teams would say, cool, hey, uh, I got a day you want to go, you want to go, you want to go, and all of a sudden it starts to, become a bit of a cultural thing hey you go there you get good information and uh everyone's happy but where this really uh, has become a i would say maybe the greatest value this is all owing to the short course it being again fairly non-long also having a decent amount of turning going on here it's used primarily as a place to replicate street courses since you can't test on a street course since they are temporary. Uh, you get teams using Sebring quite often, not always, but quite often to develop their street course packages, but also their natural terrain road course um, packages as well because there are some flowing corners. There's high speed area or two where hard braking is needed uh transitioning you know on throttle a little bit etc etc so the short course specifically here windy car is one that offers teams a pretty cool blend of street type stuff and natural terrain road course type stuff and gives teams an option to develop both and benchmark themselves as well to know that, hey, we've been here, others have been here, everyone wants to know the speeds that were turned. Like, you know, not speaking out of turn, I think, but <laughs> the minute a, a test ends at Sebring, even what, I think it was like the Foyt and Shank one where there was like three or four cars running at most, like, just tell you, a uh, lot of drivers 
within a very short amount of time and knowing that the day was over there texting one and a hey who was fastest who did what you got the time sheets what do you got and that's normal totally normal but sebring is really the place where i would say the most what do you know what do you got who did what type thing going on because everybody goes there everybody knows what they did everyone wants to know what others are doing there's a variable though and that is the the weather and the time of year and it's not impossible to set blistering speeds uh, at the right time with a brand new set of tires that can kind of uh, knock some of the traceability of who does what and when out of things, right? So, you know, it's kind of the golden hour there where if you nail it and you're on, you got a set of fresh tires late in the day, track is still warm, but ambient temperatures, sun's coming down a little bit. You can go out and rip off a lap like you wouldn't believe and using push to pass and it looks like you've gone a million miles an hour. Someone else who was maybe there at a less favorable time where, who knows, maybe it was crazy hot, crazy humid, whatever. Maybe the track wasn't as good. There can be some big variances in Sebring short course grip and therefore lap time. So uh, it can give some false reads. You might think you're doing amazing. You might think you're a million miles off. Uh, both of those could be wrong depending upon the scenario. But uh yeah it's just it's become the thing a long time ago long time ago cart era into champ car a little bit but long time ago laguna seca used to be the place to go or firebird in arizona firebird and then the phoenix oval the phoenix one mile oval that those three tended to be the most popular places to go testing, especially during the off season. Cause Hey, uh, Southwest is going to be pretty warm. Most likely California going to be pretty good. So, um, Sebring's definitely taken that mantle. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know if we got much more to go through there. Uh, we got two more here above the yellow line of death. And then I'm going to pick, uh, knows one or two more maybe to uh see if i can fire through those quickly take one more sip here before my throat retires max camposano mp sure you haven't had to think about silly season enough the last two months so here's more for you hey thanks brother uh many driver moves are very dictated by sponsors manufacturer allegiance etc I don't know if I would actually agree with that totally, my friend, but it says, I uh, would be some of the driver and team combos you would love to see that could never happen due to existing relationships or circumstances. Uh, teammates you think would create amazing drive to survive drama, dominant combo, sky's the limit, Joseph Newgarden, Hunkos, Francesco Draconi and Rocky Moran at Penske. Also, uh, Max closes by doing as so many often do saying really nice and sweet things about my wife and the cats and even me. Um, all right. I'm just going to go with our current lineup here. Uh, okay. So Kirkwood to Ganassi. Uh, I think if we're talking about Kirkwood and Palo as bedrocks to lead the team forward as two very young guys, um, with all teammates, I think that are what 30 or older, 
I forget exactly how old Marcus is, so I apologize. Uh, let's see. I'd love Kyle to go there, knowing that I firmly believe he's under loan, lease, something, lend to Foyt from Andretti. So while I expect him to go back to Andretti, um, I, the idea of him, if we're just talking about crossing lines that should, we can't imagine how, uh, going to Ganassi, um, yeah, I think that would give Chip pretty crazy uh, runway for the future there. Uh, just trying to look down the entry list here, my friend, or not entry list, the uh, entrant list. Pato at Penske, I think that would be insane. Uh, Pato and Joseph seem like they would be wrecking stuff up for many years to come. Uh, wow, yeah. Uh, the dynamics between Aaron McLaren SP trying to hold on to Pato and Penske trying to get him away from them. Zach Brown and Roger Penske going at it. Like, that seems like you want to talk about drama. That sounds like some fun there. Where else do we, uh, where else do we go here? I'd love to see Graham at Andretti, Graham Ray Hall at Andretti. I mean, he's not old, right? He's 33, which is not old. He's been doing this forever. He's been at Ganassi, did well, not great. Um, I don't know if the, quote, G2 team, as they called it, the uh, third and fourth cars that they ran, that being for Graham and Charlie Kimball. I don't know if I would say that that was everything that either side hoped that they were going to get out of each other. But um, I'd love to see him go to say an Andretti because being dropped in with a Colton and a Rossi and a Groschon, like we're going to find out really quickly where Graham's at. And I think he would surprise people who don't believe he's truly an elite talent. Um, but yeah, I don't see how that happens exactly. Uh, where else? I don't know if I'm, I'm going to absolutely knock this one out for you here, Max, just cause I don't know if I see a ton that I think at least are super interesting. Um, I mean, Takuma Sato to any Chevy powered team like that would be kind of, you know, a turd in the punch bowl. Um, Ed Carpenter to... Where do we go? Air McLaren SP third car ovals, right? Uh, granted, I love that they have Montoya, so I'm not trying to put my boy, it is what it is, out of work. But, um, yeah, what could Ed do there? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it'd be... I don't know if Air McLaren SP has anything better than what he has on his own, but I think it'd be just fascinating to see him in a large organization like Aaron McLaren SP with their formula one resources as well applied to oval racing with Ed being an integral figure, right? Not just climb in and drive, but Hey, well, boy, <laughs> got all the money in the world here, all the resources in the world. Let's go play in these areas and try and find speed and improvements. Like, I think that'd be awesome. I think knowing how Ed Carpenter racing Max so often flatters to deceive, right? Uh, 
they aren't underfunded, but I can tell you they sure could use a lot more millions. Um, imagine Ed with every single toy in the world, money, no limit. I think some pretty cool things could happen there. Uh, what else? What else comes to mind here? I think that's about all I got, my man. I love the question. Um, uh, Francesco Draconi, Uber Alice. Uh, let's see what he can do. Jamie Carr. Say, Marshall, best you, your wife, and the cats. Thank you yet again. You are way too polite, for real. Um, someone's going to come up with an acronym that says all that stuff, and then that's going to start getting used. But then that's going to annoy me. Like when it's somebody's birthday, and I see somebody post on Facebook or whatever, uh, HBD, I'm like, this is the one day a year the person is allowed to feel totally special and get celebrated for being birthed, which they had no real choice in. But here's the one day of the year where we get to treat them special and you name it. Lazy ass can't even be bothered to type out the words happy birthday, like one day a year to make them feel special. And you, you, cheap out by hbd i just always want to reach through the screen and punch those people um and if anybody looks up my social media history and finds that i've done hbd for someone uh punch me in the face uh okay that little meaningless aside since last week you said you never never been to a monster jam slash monster truck event what form of racing have you not attended but want to attend uh would you want to go as a fan or a working journalist how do we make this happen? Says hashtag me personally. I want to watch boats, specifically unlimited hydroplane. The Madison regatta is only a couple hours away from my home. Then you got to make that happen, Jamie. Just like I got to make a lot of things happen too. Uh, I'd like to go to a monster jam just because it looks like the world's best stupid fun. Like (sighs) crazy machines doing things that defy gravity and they're loud and they fly in the air and they flip and they do all kinds of stuff. And then they have cartoonish or outer space themes and what are like, how could you not love that? Um, but that's just kind of fun entertainment. If I'm talking real forms of racing that I have not partaken in, uh, rallying, I've been to one rally event and it wasn't like a WRC type deal. Um, but I'd lo- I would pick i've never been a fan of like the dust and dirt rallies like those you know hey we're going to the acropolis rally like okay go stand out on the corner and choke on dust yeah it'd probably have to be more snow or i don't know what but wrc for sure um an event at the nurburgring is definitely one that i want to do and i know that's not a specific type of racing more the track itself but i have had legitimately i think six invitations to go to the nurburgring i think maybe five of them have been from porsche and maybe one was from hyundai or nissan or there i might have had anyways one of the things you get as a journalist is invites from manufacturers to go to some of the niche type events, experience them, write about them. And it's kind of a trade thing. Hey, we'll cover the travel and put you up. And, you know, for your outlet, if your outlet agrees, you know, cover it. And, but, you know, definitely give us a little bit of love. So it happens every weekend at every form of racing. I, no joke. Every invitation I'd get, there was a conflict and a conflict for something that was more important. 
uh, often I think it was indie related, but it just became a running joke, Jamie. Like every year, Porsche would reach out, hey, do you still want to go? Yes, I still want to go, but I can't. So, yeah, I'm the guy who would have had six or seven of those on my uh, CV so far from a coverage standpoint, but not yet. So that's one of them. Um, I mean, I'm really fortunate, though, man. I've been to races in Australia, Japan, France, England, trying to think where else. I don't know. All over. A lot of things. Crazy, amazing. Brazil. Uh, I've even been to Canada for motor races. Um, I'm super fortunate that way. So I don't know. I almost feel like, yeah, dude, you've kind of gotten a lot. Maybe let someone else have some. But uh, yeah, I'd say if I could rally would be great it's been a long time since i've been to an f1 race like 20 something years so maybe like to go see f1 again but it looks like less fun than ever um unless you're going to an event where there is a crazy hyper partisan crowd for a particular driver or manufacturer Uh, so going to mexico if pato was in the field would be amazing um English GP with uh, Lewis, uh, boy, going to Zandvoort. Uh, not, I mean, the reconfigured track looks amazing, but going to Zandvoort and the, the crowd support there from Max, like those things jump out. Like they'd be amazing to go to. So, yeah, I think it might end up, other than a snowy WRC thing, Jamie, just being more of a, experiential thing like wow it'd be cool to see this happen there uh than just series itself Let's see uh gonna dip quickly below the yellow line of death uh gary chin mp you've been so busy with the podcast writing for racer and the mailbag and for other clients on top of that taking care of your lovely wife how are you doing wow <laughs> I'm not laughing at the guys laughing like this. Just so amazingly kind and thoughtful of someone ask. Thanks, Gary. Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, booked travel for St. Pete with the hope that, uh, Rona cases keep declining and I can go without being constantly worried the whole time. Be wearing a mask of course, but, um, doing okay. there. trying to manage everything else, uh, in life with work and um personal health and trying to improve there and obviously you know being here with my wife doing all i need to do to take care of her i mean busier than i've ever been but important like meaningful stuff like truly uh this is the the ability to have all this time with my wife even though adversity is underpinning a lot of that it's truly uh the the kind of the biggest blessing honor whatever you want to call it like i've ever had i mean i've done so many things professionally right if i never did if all i did was sit home and write stories about whatever and never went to another motor race again be sad but i can also say like i've done so much of it for most of my life like you know, I've been blessed that way, man. Um, the ability to 
spend my days with my wife, my best friend, the person that I love more than anything, the person whose health and quality of life is means more than anything to me. Like, I wish it were just because we got to be home together. I wish that there weren't extenuating circumstances, but like, what an amazing gift. I mean that. This, I'm not trying to be sappy or whatever else. Just like, honestly, throughout this, uh, throughout these last three years almost, um, I've thought maybe not every day, but every other day, every two or three days, it's been almost a, a constant thing, Gary, that comes through my mind of like, dude, you should have had this focus much earlier. Uh, and pushed back and said, no, I'm not going to go to the Grand Am race at here and the LMS race there. And yeah, hey, we love IndyCars at, or IRL at Kentucky or whatever. Like, so uh, there's definitely a big new perspective uh, that has been gained of, yes, I love racing. It is my lifelong passion. And I am racers one and only and lead IndyCar reporter uh, having to fill the void, the shoes that Robin had plus keep doing what I've been doing for all these years as well. A lot of pressure and expectations there. None of those are totally new. Again, Robin was sick for many years. So was having to do what I'm doing now um, long before he passed. So there wasn't like a huge adjustment for me. But there has been a very real, uh, to answer the how are you doing, doing well, but there has been a very real, like, I'm going to look at the IndyCar calendar. There are no races that are less important than the others, but I'm not going to all of them. Um, And I need to make sure that I balance uh, what I do travel to with where does this rate not only of, in terms of importance to is the event a big one? Is it a big one for racer? And is it worth being away from my wife for three, four, five days maybe um, while we're still going through recovery and having all kinds of appointments and things we have to do? So I appreciate you asking. Uh, I don't know how different I will look on the outside when folks start to see more of me, but I know that on the inside, been a massive amount of changes uh, as a result of what we have gone through. Uh, my role in life changing to be a caretaker first and uh, typer, word talker, whatever, or guy, second, third, fourth, or fifth. So uh, doing okay, man. Um, really do wish days were longer. So <laughs> I had more time to decompress and sleep, uh, but we'll get there. Uh, where are we going to go? Brian Smith, you say Toyota's not happening, right? You said that, not me. Um, I may be writing a little something about this topic here, not saying what you're saying is accurate or inaccurate, just reading the what you sent in and noting that look here on racer.com shortly. Uh, Joseph, uh, Ashzet. I apologize, Joseph. I, my brain just does not want to tell me how to say your last name correctly. 
As a follow-up to my body question, two shows ago, I got curious about how often teams are caught pushing the rule book. A Google search sent me back eight years. Is it really the last time someone got caught? How is it handled today? I wonder if you're referring to the Dale Coin Racing Texas bodywork uh, issues there. Yeah. Um, there's really not much you can do, Joseph, to circumvent the rules of how of say body work and fits and such you can be off a little bit and they'll catch it and they'll tell you to fix it. But, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to think of any areas where teams can really cheat and just not get caught. Uh, Jonas Magnuson, Marshall, what is your boldest prediction for the 2022 IndyCar season? What driver team or announcement will surprise us the most? Boy, the amount of things that I've, am not currently writing about and or have been asked to hold on to and not mention because it would not be flattering. Um, it, the list is getting a little longer than I'd like. I got to admit. Um, looking through the list here yet again. I don't know who's going to engineer Tatiana Calderon's car at AJ Foyt racing. I know that in a text exchange this morning, um, I, upon being asked, provided the name of someone I thought they might ring. I don't know who's going to be engineering her car. Therefore, it makes it impossible to say how well Tatiana will do. I will say, though, that if she has a decent engineer, I think Tatiana is going to surprise quite a few people. Now, granted, she might be towards the bottom end of the field almost everywhere we go, but knowing how big the learning curve is for her, yada, 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 I think she's going to surprise. I know that's not biggest and boldest, but I don't know if, if we've failed to cover those kinds of things in the past many episodes, if not year or whatever else. Um Here's a couple things I'm looking for very quickly. Ed Carpenter Racing, two full-time drivers for the first time ever, I think. Same person, same car, all season long, no swapping in and out, whatever, whatever. Um, that's a good thing. Curious, will they move forward as a result of that consistency with Renus and Connor? And has their engineering team found enough gains during the offseason for ECR to hold their position or move forward? Or are they in jeopardy of falling back a bit? I'm concerned about that. And again, it's not for a lack of work, talent, anything else, but it's the one team that is almost completely status quo. Uh, same everybody, same driver, same, 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 same. Um, among those who haven't been kind of front-running all the time uh, teams. I know Renus won a race last year. So, again, they're a race-winning team. Just, I'll be curious there. Uh, I think Ray Hollerman and Lanigan Racing, here's the quote bold prediction. Um, I think they're going to be the biggest risers of any team this year. I think they're going to be the ones that surprise the living poop out of people. I also kind of feel like I might have said that on a recent episode. So I don't know. I don't commit a lot of these things. Um, uh, Jonas to my memory, uh, but there you go. Uh, Zach Dean, you're wondering uh, this week if motorsports could ever be in the Olympics. 
then you said why does not why doesn't IndyCar ha- do a nations race? Um, then you just mentioned are you close. I was just thinking how cool motorsports and the Olympics would be. Yeah, I don't know. I think the race of champions does a pretty good job. Um, I, I this is not meant. No, it isn't political. It is truly. I was about to say that. Don't want to get political. This isn't political. It's societal. Um, I don't know, man. The Olympics just keep feeling disgustinger and disgustinger uh, year after year. No matter what city, whether it's Brazil, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's USA, whether it's wherever. Just the more that I, I, and I think others continue to learn about the IOC, um, the International Olympic Committee, and just the pure strip mining of cash out of the places where the Olympics are held, um, and the economic waste that ends, or waste that happens, or greed, just, I don't know. Uh, I used to be enamored by the Olympics and then started learning more and more about the behind the scenes stuff. And you go, Oh, this is kind of like a plague that drops onto city and or country by country. And yeah, it was really cool for two weeks or whatever the length is, but some of the human devastation and, uh, economic, uh, pain and so many things you go like, Whoa. Okay. So Sorry, don't mean to get too serious here to close the show, but the idea of motorsports, the thing I love most, being part of the Olympics, which just feel like they've tipped in the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, I'm okay with not doing that. Um, Vincent1701, you've sent this, I think, once or twice. You said, of the IndyCar survey questions, which one caught your eye the most? Uh, none of them, because I haven't seen it, uh, was a, I don't know. Either A wasn't sent to me, B I didn't really look to see if it was there was a place to go and find it and see. I don't really give a crap. I mean, I don't I don't know how to say that. Um, survey stuff doesn't necessarily apply to what I do or what I'm thinking about. At least I think Vincent, uh, because I'm not a consumer of IndyCar in a normal way like others. So I don't buy tickets. I don't you know like. I'm a person who works in the series. So if it were a survey for those who work inside the series and the questions were aimed in that vein, um, I'd probably uh, have a better reason to take a look at it. Uh, Let me see. Trying to look through the last one. Vincent, you're also asking, could IndyCar up the horsepower by using a different fuel to overcome the new weight coming with ERS system? Sure. But, um, yeah, they're pretty happy with E85, and uh, yeah, I think from a marketability standpoint, uh, going to a hybrid power unit, uh, energy recovery system, which both and any and all brands want to use to promote, and then having some sort of crazy caustic nitro death methane, like, yeah, those things conflict, so it ain't happening. Um... JJ Gertler, we're just going to close here with you. Um, Marshall, this may be more an SCCA question this week than an IndyCar one, but is uh, Roger Warwick not the most awesome dude? He is. Uh, I woke up, whatever it was, a week ago or Monday, or I don't even, I'm forgetting what day it was. I think it was last week, but yeah. Uh, Roger surprised me. He uh, saw the photo that I posted on what would have been my father's 82nd birthday on February 1st of him standing next to the little Formula Ford 
that he and I uh, built our little $3,000 Formula Ford, the cheapest Formula Ford ever. And uh, he tuned that, tuned my dad, turned it into a cartoon as a surprise and sent it to me. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about waking up, choking back tears, man. That was pretty amazing. So thanks to Roger. Uh, thanks to y'all. Uh, appreciate you, Ed George. You sent in a couple questions. Sorry I didn't get to those. Um, we're almost done with the preseason here and almost ready to go racing. Uh, Steve Grinstead, Jerry Suddeth, uh, Jeremiah Schnetzka, um, asking about third engine stuff. Uh, be writing about that here soon. I think he sent in another one that I couldn't really make out cause might've been using voice to text or might not have caught the typos, but I couldn't exactly make sense of what you were asking, but, um, appreciate y'all apologize to those whose questions I didn't get to. If you really want them to be answered, try sending them in again and maybe Jim will uh, give you the green light. I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is our Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Speak to you next week.